Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 36 of Sports Day Plus. At 6.45, where are we at in society? It's an anniversary for one of Tom Herman's most embarrassing moments as the coach of the Longhorns. At 6.15, it is the first of a two-segment chat with Justin Wells of Inside Texas and InsideTexas.com. Not only getting you ready for the Longhorns' big Sugar Bowl matchup with Washington in that college football semifinal game on Monday night, but also talking about Texas' latest successes in the transfer portal. And a mere seconds, looking back on Week 16 in the NFL, including the Cowboys dropping another one on the road. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can follow me on Twitter, at Courtesy Wave, and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Well, we are now just about five days from the Texas Longhorns and Washington Huskies squaring off in New Orleans in that college football playoff semifinal game. It'll be the second of two semifinal games that day with Alabama and Michigan facing one another in Pasadena, California earlier in the day. I'm excited because I'm going to be in New Orleans making the drive on Saturday hanging out in the Big Easy for New Year's Eve, Sunday into Monday, and then, yes, the game itself, a 7.45 Central Time kickoff, giving people in New Orleans a chance to get nice and lubed up before the game itself. I will be in the stands for the game. Seats not as good as the game several years ago where the Longhorns beat Georgia. I was in the lower bowl for that game around the 20. In the top deck, This time around, also around the 20, but just to be in that stadium should be a lot of fun. It is a unique atmosphere, to say the least. And like a lot of Longhorn fans, I feel good about Texas' chances right now. Understanding that this is the worst of the three matchups for Texas amongst playoff teams this year because Washington is really good throwing the football, and if Texas has a question mark on either side of the ball, it's their ability to defend against the pass. But ultimately, people might be sleeping on that Texas offense while also not realizing that if the Texas defensive line plays its A game, then it's not going to matter how well defensive backs are guarding against the exceptionally talented Huskies receiving core three to four seconds after the ball is snapped. It's going to be important that Texas utilizes Anthony Hill more as a pass rusher versus a traditional linebacker. But in the end, I think we get a really entertaining, exciting game that I'd like to think Texas is going to win and play for a national championship a week later, a city closer to us than New Orleans. That's right, the championship game happening at NRG Stadium in Houston this year. And you know there will be a huge Texas contingent for that game as well. Talk more about that matchup coming up next segment with Justin Wells of Inside Texas, InsideTexas.com. First, though, let's take a look back on NFL Week 16. Two really good matchups, in theory, on paper for Week 16, one of which turned out to be an entertaining game. The other was a bit of an eye-opener for everybody who thought they knew the team to beat in the NFL this year. Let's start with Big D. Not in Big D because the game was technically in South Florida. But the Cowboys 
trying to shake off a tough loss, a blowout loss to the Buffalo Bills last weekend on the road by slowing up or attempting to slow up one of the most explosive offenses in football with the Miami Dolphins. Tyreek Hill did play in the game, although he was clearly hobbled. Jalen Waddell also played. He got dinged up at some point in the game as well. But Miami, for as much as is talked about, their passing attack is also really good at running the football. And even though the Cowboys did lose this game, I think there were some reasons to believe that things are heading in a better direction. Now, you also need to come to terms with the fact that you are likely going to be playing every possible playoff game on the road. But Dak Prescott had a bounce-back effort, 250 yards passing, a couple of touchdowns. And I thought the defense did a better job. It felt like they were going to get gouged on the ground, especially with Achan back in the Dolphins' backfield. But Mostert and Achan and Jeff Wilson, to a lesser degree, had... Okay days, but this really was more the Tua Tungavailoa show for the Dolphins on offense. Tyreek Hill has nine catches for 99 yards. But only one offensive touchdown allowed by this Cowboys football team. And I think that right there is the biggest reason for optimism. Of course, Dak bouncing back was going to be necessary, but you expected that. Even great players have bad games from time to time, and that's what happened with Dak and Buffalo two weeks ago, but this Cowboys team made a better showing of it coming down, temporarily taking the lead on a really nice drive by Dak in that offense before ultimately surrendering a game-winning touchdown drive to the Dolphins that ended with a game-winning field goal by Jason Sanders, 29-yarder as time expired. Now, the other game that took a lot of people by surprise, maybe everybody outside of Baltimore, was the Monday night game. The third of three Christmas Day Monday football games, this being the Baltimore Ravens at the San Francisco 49ers, a battle of the two best teams in the National Football League, record-wise. Both teams coming into that game as one seeds. Both teams leave the game as one seeds as well. And believe it or not, San Francisco in more of a driver's seat right now with regards to maintaining that one scene to Baltimore. That's because if Miami can beat Baltimore this weekend and win their last game, believe it or not, they actually capture the one seed on the AFC side this year. Whereas San Francisco, they lose another game and are, I believe, tied record-wise with the Eagles right now. You think back... Just a couple of weeks, and oh wait, how about the Detroit Lions also having an 11-4 and record? I'm not totally sure what's going to happen with the one seed on the NFC side of things, other than knowing that there are three teams with the same record right now. The 49ers beat the Eagles, so they have the advantage over the Eagles, and as NFL.com has it, it's 49ers, Eagles, then Lions in terms of one through three if every team maintains the same record the rest of the way. Lions face the Cowboys this week, whereas the Eagles face Arizona, and the 49ers have Washington, so take that for what you will. But the 49ers are now a team that has a serious question mark at quarterback, yeah. A guy that we've seen work his magic for the better part of two seasons now, 
coming back and playing at the start of this season despite suffering a major elbow injury at the end of last year in that playoff game that required surgery and an off-season's worth of rehab. Well, some questions are being asked about Brock Purdy right now, and some may be fair, but you also have to wonder just how healthy he was with that game on Monday night after suffering a stinger the previous week. What we said all along about the San Francisco football team, we've applied to three guys on offense. Maybe we need to make sure to include that fourth guy as well, Brock Purdy. Because George Kittle, Debo Samuel, Christian McCaffrey, guys with injury histories that when they're healthy are about as productive as anybody at their position. Well, Brock Purdy needs to be healthy too because otherwise it needs to be the Sam Darnold show. And I know that football fans around the league scoff at that. Sam Darnold has unfortunately had to deal with a bad hand as a professional. He had the QB screamer, the quarterback screamer, Adam Gase as his head coach his first couple of years with the Jets. Then he got traded to Carolina for the end of the Matt Rule era, which was a complete debacle. I don't think you should completely write Sam Darnold off just yet, especially with a coach like Kyle Shanahan, who understands how to craft a system around what his quarterback strengths are. So if it turns into Sam Darnold, in some ways that could be even more difficult for the rest of the NFL because Sam Darnold skills-wise, is a better quarterback than Brock Purdy. But we'll just have to wait and watch for that after Baltimore just completely obliterates San Francisco. Try a comeback at the end. It doesn't happen, and now Baltimore looks like the team to beat, but they feel like a flawed football team as well. We'll certainly talk more NFL throughout the rest of the week. Coming up, though, we get back into the Texas Longhorns conversation with Justin Wells of Inside Texas. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It is Wednesday at 6.15, which means it's time for a couple of segments spent learning from Justin Wells of Inside Texas, InsideTexas.com, and the Inside Texas YouTube channel. Give him a follow on Twitter at JustinWells2424, and again, hear him on this show Every Wednesday throughout the year, usually right around 6.15. Justin, thank you as always for the time. How you doing today? Man, I'm doing good. Get those post-Christmas vibes, buddy. I'm uh, eating leftovers, throwing away wrapping paper, and getting ready for some Sugar Bowl. Cannot wait for that Sugar Bowl to get going. Real quick, though, what was the best present your son got this year? That, that my son received? Yes. Uh... You probably have to ask him, but he probably it's either he got a full size Lego Millennium Falcon, Star oh. Wars Millennium Falcon with seventy five thousand pieces, <laughs> um, and he got a Corey Seager uh, rookie autograph. Oh wow! Holder. So you'd have to ask him, but he'd probably go for those two. Hopefully, Dad is holding on to the Corey Seager autograph card. Actually, uh, he is very good about that stuff. Okay. He is actually starting a little side hustle where he's selling cards and selling stacks of lots and he's trading cards he doesn't want to add to the collection he does want. And he has it all organized in his room. And so he knows exactly what he's holding on to. I can promise you that. All right. Good for him. As far as Texas and Washington is concerned, this feels like it is going to be an exciting football game in New Orleans on New Year's night. 
what do you think gives Texas the best advantage to win this game, Justin? Line of scrimmage. I, I think Texas is is a, a favorable matchup on both sides. Uh, you can start with the Texas offensive line. A lot of returning guys with a lot have logged a lot of snaps, a lot of starts, a lot of veteran play up there. Um, and I, I just don't know if, 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 you know, they face some pretty stout defensive lines this year. And, and I don't know how much Washington's going to be able to, to really get a push. They're active on that side of the ball. But I, I really do feel good about Texas O-line. Then when you switch it around, you know, Washington won the Joe uh, Moore Award last week, uh, say, uh, pitting the nation's top offensive line. And that trickled into the locker room during practice one evening. So the defensive line now has some bulletin board material if they needed it to begin with. But I I absolutely, I know Washington's O-line is good, but I, I just, Texas' group is just so tough. Tavondre Sweat, Byron Murphy, uh, Vernon Broughton, Alfred Collins, th- those guys have been so good this year. I think the advantages for Texas, and there's gonna, there's probably a few other spots, a few other positions as well, but it to me it starts on the line of scrimmage, and I think Texas has the best when it comes to the O-line and D-line. Is there a position group that has done a better job of developing on the defensive side of the ball for the Longhorns than the linebackers this year? Obviously, we knew what we had with Jalen Ford, but – I feel like between Anthony Hill, David Benda, and Maurice Blackwell, once he got back and healthy, uh, those guys have done a lot to turn heads and uh, make sure to do their part whenever the defense is holding up its end of the bargain. Look, when when the front four are getting a push, when the front four are getting uh, pressure, collapsing the pocket, that makes the linebackers' job a lot easier. And when you got guys like Jalen Ford and Anthony Hill and David Benda and Maurice Blackwell – in Jet Bush, in some instances, you've got some really good play back there behind those guys. That, that makes, to me, a formidable front seven. I think it begins with Ford and Hill. Those two guys, you got the senior, you got the freshman. One torch is getting passed to the next. Uh, I, I think that play has been tremendous, and, and I think that's why Jeff Choate deserves his flowers on his way out to being the head coach at Nevada. I, I think he's done a, a, a wonderful job with that group, and they're going to be ready. Last year, Washington faced Texas in the Alamo Bowl without an Anthony Hill. And so I think that'll be a little bit of a difference maker this uh, this time around. You think we see a little bit more of Anthony Hill coming off the edge and less playing more traditional linebacker? I mean, if there is a criticism of his game right now, it's that he's still coming along as a, a guy who drops back in coverage. And we know what his greatest strength is. It's been a strength since the beginning of the season. And it was obviously well on display for that big win over Alabama two games into the year. Yeah, you know, Anthony, I feel like they're going to show some stuff that we haven't seen this year. Mm. I think they're going to show some stuff that Washington definitely hasn't seen on tape. Um, I'd be shocked if he's not doing a little bit of edge action just because of his explosiveness. But I honestly think he's going to be probably lined up at, at linebacker on that will side a little bit more because he can cover in space. And if the front four can stop, can can, can at least stop the gaps and 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 – hold on to the run game, I think that's going to allow those linebackers to do a little bit more in space with the with these receivers because that's Washington's cup of tea. They're going to chunk the ball. That, that's what they want to do. They want to throw it. And Anthony Hill is one of the best linebackers 
on the team when it comes to coverage and space. So I think you'll see a little bit of both. He'll be on the edge on a few on a few sets, and I think he's going to be uh, you know playing linebacker and the rest of it just because he is so good at covering and at a position that really covets that. What is the biggest reason for optimism within the Texas secondary, considering how much the storyline of Washington being really good throwing the football against Texas being not very good at defending against the pass? What is the biggest cause for optimism in the Texas secondary that has you believing otherwise? Yeah, I I think Texas is good against the pass. I think the numbers can be skewed somewhat. Yeah, safety play can, can be inconsistent. I mean, Michael Taft and Derek Williams have been Mr. Consistencies back there, and, and they've done a tremendous job. Derek Williams is going to miss the first half of this game because of a, a targeting you know, penalty in the Big 12 championship. Um, the corners, I think, are fine. Like I, I think the corners are better this year than they were last year. I think Texas has more an advantage there, and they're going to need it because Washington goes three, four deep on these receivers. They can all catch, they can all move, and they, they can all produce. Um Safety play is going to have to be solid. Jaron Thompson and Michael Taft are going to have to hold it down in that first half. They're going to have to make sure they don't get beat. And th- and you got two of the smartest kids on the team back there too, Trey. So they're going to be in the right spot. They're going to ha- take the right angles. They're they're not going to to miss much back there. But better get ready because Washington is a chunk yardage monster, and Michael Penix likes to grip it and rip it. Flipping to the offensive side of the ball for the Longhorns, if Texas is going to win this game on Monday night, Justin, does Quinn Ewers need to be the offensive MVP? He doesn't have to be the MVP, but he's got to be good. He's got to be Texas Tech Big 12 championship good. Like, his last two games have been two of the best of the season. Uh, That Big 12 championship might have been the best game we've seen outside of Alabama. He doesn't have to be the MVP, but I'll say this. With Jonathan Brooks out, they're going to rely on that that committee at running back again with you know CJ Baxter and 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 Jaden Blue and, and Trey Wisner and and Keelan Robinson, and he's got the receivers Adnan Mitchell, Xavier Worthy, Jatavian Sanders, one of the best tight ends in the game. Quinn Ewers has to play well for Texas to win. I don't necessarily think he has to be the MVP. But the game's going to begin and end with him, and so if he plays well, they're going to be in a good spot. If he doesn't. It could be a long night in New Orleans. You talked about how the defensive line took that Joe Moore award information, the Washington offensive line being touted as the best in the country, and they're using that as motivation. How much does the Texas offensive line use that as motivation as well, considering that they were also a finalist for that award? Ah, you know... I think it's a little different on the O-line than it is the D-line. You know, those offensive linemen are, uh, they're at a level of their own. They're they're kind of, they're kind of creatures of the, of their own. And, and so, but knowing Kelvin Banks and Christian Jones and Jake Majors and Cole Hudson and DJ Campbell and Hayden Connor and those guys, they'll find something. They'll find something to pull from that. But honestly, when you're the biggest, strongest and baddest on the block you don't really need too much motivation I think you could just run and just run over people and I feel like that's kind of what this offensive line is going to want to do Washington's got some guys up front don't get it twisted but I really do like the matchup with the Texas O-line will they find some added added bulletin bulletin board material from this man I'm not really sure 
not like the D-line. It seems like Byron Murphy and Devondre Sweat can always find an angle. But uh, but don't 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 catch them slipping. They're, they're motivated as well. And so don't be surprised if they come out with a, a little bit more of a punch in that first series. Is there any one player or aspect of this Washington defense that concerns you the most, Justin? You know... I like their secondary. People are it, people are really back and forth on that. Mm-hmm. I, I like their secondary. I like their DBs. I, I, I think they're solid back there. I really like Jabbar Muhammad. He's one of their corners. This is a kid out of DeSoto. He's related to Malik Muhammad, huh. one of the cornerbacks for the Texas Longhorns. And Jabbar, you know, he transferred, I believe, from Oklahoma State and just instantly was a was a match up there in Washington. And so um, I like their secondary. I really do. I think they've got solid D-line and linebacker play, but I think the secondary is is a group that they're used to playing a lot back there because Washington builds so many leads to where the other team has to throw the ball, so they get tested a lot. And I think Jamar, Jabbar, if there's one guy, Jabbar Muhammad's the one that I would probably be watching the closest. Okay, and uh, we will get Justin's prediction at the end of this conversation, which is going to continue on the other side. He is Justin Wells of Inside Texas, InsideTexas.com, the Inside Texas YouTube channel. You can follow him on Twitter at JustinWells2424 and hear him on this show for a couple of segments, usually every Wednesday starting at around 6.15. Coming up on the other side, even though we are preparing ourselves for the Sugar Bowl, the Longhorns just knocked it out of the park with the 2024 recruiting class. National Signing Day 1 ended last Friday. Uh, Texas uh, ends up with a few more names before it's all said and done. And they continue finding success with that transfer portal as well, getting another big-time player at another position of need just before the holiday weekend. And they go south on I-35 to do so. We'll talk about those details and more coming up with Justin up next. It's Sports Day. A-plus with Trey Elling. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Back for one more segment with Justin Wells of Inside Texas, InsideTexas.com, and the Inside Texas YouTube channel. You can give him a follow on Twitter at JustinWells2424 and hear him on this show every Wednesdays for a couple of segments, usually starting right around 6.15. All right, Justin, the uh, Texas Longhorn coaches just continue to crush it on the recruiting trail, and uh, they finish off a uh, top five, some might say a top two or three recruiting class this year with the addition of wide receiver Aaron Butler, a wideout out of the state of California. Just how impressed were you with what this, uh, these Texas coaches were able to do with this year's recruiting class? You know, every year it seems like Sark finds two or three guys late in the cycle that are what we consider late senior evaluations, he winds up getting them signed and they wind up being ball players. And that's kind of what I feel about with Aaron Butler. He's a 5'11", about six foot, very in shape, 185, 190, uh, athlete, wide receiver out of Calabasas, California. Used to be uh, committed to USC, that didn't work. Then he was committed to Colorado, that didn't work. Now he's going to find a home in Austin. This was one of those late additions by Chris Jackson, you know, Ryan Wingo was identified early. Parker Livingstone, Freddie DuBose, those are guys that were, were already identified before Chris Jackson got on campus. He got to know him. He helped recruit him. He helped sign him. Aaron Butler's kind of his first guy. This is the first one that he had really, you know, kind of 
He had actually went to see him last month, a little under the radar, did an in-home, got a little bit closer with the coaching staff and the family, and, and just feels like that Butler's going to be a natural fit at the slot position. And so this kid is athletic. He is quick twitch. He is fast. He's got good hands. I think the route running will come. I think the development will come. But he's a guy that put him in the system, let him work behind Jonte Cook and DeAndre Moore for a year or so, and then – uh pull it out and and let's see what kind of product he has. Taking a quick overview of the recruiting class for 2025, what are the biggest positions of strength just in general, I guess across the state and across the country that uh, the Longhorns coaches will be focusing on next year? Oh, wide receivers really good in state and across the country. They're going to they're going to go a little they'll go a little bit bigger on the O-line. I think they're going to go a little bit bigger on the D-line. Linebacker. They only signed one in the last cycle. And there's one guy on the hook right now, Shadow Creek's uh, Anthony Williams. He's a 2025, 6'4", about 190, 195 pound edge slash linebacker uh, out of South Houston. He's going to announce on New Year's Day. And the Texas Longhorns look tremendous in that recruitment. And so linebacker is going to be a, a priority when they only inked one in the last cycle. And Ty Anthony Smith, I think they go two at corner. They can cherry pick some of these guys because the depth on the roster in Austin is ridiculous. And then at safety, I'd like to see them grab two more guys. You know, they got Xavier Filsume and they and then they added Jordan Johnson Rebel, but you got to reload. And there's some really good safety play uh, in, in the state of Texas and across the country. And so I would look big. You know, Choice is always going to get his two running backs. Mm-hmm. He's going to go big game hunting. Harlem Berry, Jordan Davison types. Receivers, there's there there are a dozen in state that you could probably choose. O line, they're going to kind of do the same as they did last time. D line, replenish. But I I really think linebacker play will be the one that they that they focus on the most. And as the Longhorn coaches prepare for a college football playoff semifinal game and tie off that 24 recruiting class, at least through National Signing Day 1, they continue to crush it in the transfer portal. What should Longhorn fans know about former UTSA defensive end Trey Moore? Yeah, uh, productive, okay? Trey Moore is like a hound dog, and the quarterback is the scent. And, buddy, he finds them. Some way, somehow, he finds them. This guy is absolutely tenacious at it. He, he's really good at with, with, with his shape. He's really good with, with shifting his hips. He's really good with sinking and going. He can bend the edge. He can move in space. I mean, you're talking about a guy that had 105 tackles in the last two seasons, 35 and a half tackles for losses, 22 sacks, uh, just unbelievable. And give Jeff Trailer and that group at UTSA a ton of credit. Credit. This is a kid from Spring Branch, Smithson Valley. He had zero stars coming out of high school. Zero. They wouldn't even give him a star. The guy goes to UTSA, puts on an incredible show for two years, gets to trade up. And now he gets to play for his dream school, the Texas Longhorns. Give Trailer and those guys a ton of credit for that development and that identification. And then give the, the Texas staff, Anthony Hill, who was involved as well, and Coach PK and Sark credit for, for, for convincing him to, to move down the road because Alabama came pretty strong, Trey. Ohio State brought him in for a visit. They came on pretty strong. But at the end of the day, the kid grew up about an hour from campus. He wanted to be a Longhorn. He worked hard at UTSA to get to this point. And now the Horns are going to get to reap the rewards of this kid for the next two years. You're you're basically looking at him on one side 
and Colin Simmons on the other in some sort of fashion, mixing in obviously your 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 Ethan Burke and your Billy Walton and, and guys like that. Uh, I'll just say the rich get richer. Uh, Sark knows how to build a roster. They don't just go to the portal and take the best players they can find. They look for a couple, two or three, that are culture fits, physical fits, and and are hungry. And, man, he hit a home run this year with Trey Moore. Yeah, and they just keep going and and plugging at positions of need. Wide receiver, where you're going to have a void next year. Defensive end, and you can never have enough productive defensive ends. And this is a school that has had a problem finding productive defensive ends. It's started to change this year, thankfully. And then that safety position as well. It, It really is a thing of beauty to watch these guys with their roster management. You know, I think that's an underrated aspect of all of this. Obviously, the player development is really coming along, and schematically, these guys know what they're doing. But understanding holes and, and how to target the right guys to fill those holes from one season to the next uh, cannot be overstated. No, no, you nailed that. Sark, and I think he got some of this from his days with the Atlanta Falcons. Mm. Uh, and, and you know, I talk about this a lot. He churns the bottom of the roster. Yep. He's really good about that. You know, even – you know, bringing in guys that may not develop as quickly, he'll help them find another spot because he's going to bring in someone else to to, to fill that void. Um, it's almost ran like an NFL roster. It really is. It's and and you know what? I, I think this doesn't get mentioned enough. I think Sark has the perfect temperament for the era of college football recruiting we're in, mm. where you have to balance portal with keeping your own players with also high school recruiting evaluations, development, things of that sort, you're literally juggling three or four things at once. It never ends, Trey. Like these coaches will tell you, it it never ends. I think Sark has figured out the right recipe for this. Of course, winning on the field cures all. And at Texas, if you win, good things always happen. They always have and they always will. But I, I just think it's unique that Steve Sarkeesian's the coach at Texas right now in this time and day of NIL and portal, and he's able to bring in some of that Pete Carroll stuff he learned from USC where you load up at every position for competition and you push each other each day. He learned from the Atlanta Falcons how to manage the roster. He learned from Alabama and Nick Saban how to run the, as close to a perfect program as you possibly can. And again, when you win, things get a lot easier. But Sark isn't taking that for granted. You know, when Texas wins, they could pretty much – there's a couple guys in this recruiting cycle. If they wanted a higher recruiting class, they probably could have flipped. They probably could have gone after. But he is judicious in his takes. Mm. If you're not a culture fit at this stage, maybe three years ago he'd take a chance on you. In 2023 going into 2024, no way, Jose – Sark is only going to bring in the right guys. He's only going to bring in certain guys. He has a type, and right now that type is complete buy-in at the University of Texas. Everyone policing everybody, everyone pulling for everybody, you know, fighting for the guy next to you. This is a player-led squad, and Sark, I feel like, has been the perfect addition with his temperament for this uh, college football era. Well said there. All right, last question now. What is your prediction between the Longhorns and Huskies on New Year's night in the Superdome? Man, I think it's going to be a shootout. I mean, I love Texas defense. I think they'll, I think they're going to play well and get to the quarterback. But Washington, like I said, they lead the nation in chunk yardage. Those guys, and it's almost doubled the next school 
it, it's amazing just how much they, they they threaten the field. And I think that'll get to Texas a few times, but I think it's going to go both ways. I think Quinn Ewers is going to be able to rip off. Like last year, he had a career high 352 yards in that Alamo Bowl. I think he can only do more. And so, and I expect more. And so I, I think it's going to be a shootout. Give me Texas 38, Washington 31. I think Alabama and Michigan is going to be a slobber knocker. I think it's going to be an old style heavyweight match that winds up being 13 to 10. I think they're going to beat the mess out of each other. And then Texas is going to head to Houston in a week to prepare for one of those teams for the national championship, Trey. Which team? I think it's going to be Alabama. Wow. I think we're going to get a rematch. I'd rather Michigan, even though Texas plays Michigan in week two next year in Ann Arbor, I would rather it be Michigan just for it to be a little bit different. And just for the fact that how many people can you name that have ever beat Nick Saban twice in one season? (laughs) I I don't know that answer, but I'm going to guess zero. (laughs) Yeah, there may have been an, an AFC East team whose coach beat him twice when he was with the Miami Dolphins. But yeah, that, that is not for count. certain. On the that college level, that's asking for the impossible. Yeah, look, he never was meant for the NFL. He knew it two weeks after he took that job. He was looking for a college job three weeks after he took the Dolphins job. We don't <laughs> count the NFL. We only count college football majesty coach Nick Saban. And, and I got to that, – that, I mean, that makes me want to look it up. I really do want to know if there's ever been a team beat Saban twice in the same year. Yeah, it's, uh, you're probably right. It's either nobody or that list is like one person long. He is Justin Wells <laughs> yeah. of Inside Texas, InsideTexas.com, and the Inside Texas YouTube channel. Follow him on Twitter at JustinWells2424 and hear him on this show for a couple of segments on Wednesdays, usually starting at 615. Justin, thank you as always, my friend. I may see you in New Orleans. Hopefully, my man. Nothing but love, Trey. Coming up and Where Are We At in Society, it's the anniversary of one of Tom Herman's most embarrassing moments here as the coach of Texas. We'll talk about it next. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Final segment of today's show means it's time for... Where Are We At in Society today? That's right, it is your regular look at stories that show we as a people are headed in the wrong direction. Very occasionally, I will bring you a story that provides a sense of optimism, has us all saying to ourselves, hey, maybe we as a people are starting to figure something out. But sadly, today is not that day. Going to have to talk about somebody who is apparently in love with a tree. Before that, though... Need to give you an on-this-date-in-Texas-football history... Take it back six years to 2017. What happened on this date, December 27th, 2017? Any guesses? Texas won a bowl game on this date. They won the Texas Bowl, as a matter of fact, on this date. Ah, yes, the illustrious Texas Bowl that often pits two 6-6 six and six teams against one another. That's not the case this year. It's... A&M and Oklahoma State, those two teams are, well, at least one of them is way better than 6-6. Six and six. Off the top of my head, I don't remember what A&M finished. It was either 6-6 six and six or 7-5. and five. I fully expect Oklahoma State to win that game handily. 
But on this date in 2017, Texas beat Missouri in the Texas Bowl. That was a battle of six and six teams, and that's not why this day matters. This day matters for Texas football fans because it was one of several embarrassing public moments for then Longhorns coach Tom Herman. If you remember at the end of this game, which was a matchup that was rife with trash talking leading up to it, including Missouri quarterback Drew Locke, who had a live arm and a desire to secure the bag after he would make good plays. And I think he even did it at one point in this game against Texas. Well, at the end of the game, when Texas had the game well in hand, winning 32-16, to with a little bit under the two minutes left in the game, the Texas sideline... Well, they started cracking up. Why did they start cracking up? Because Tom Herman started mocking Drew Locke, securing the bag. Prancing up and down the sidelines, looking like he was tweaking his man boobs. I know that he was securing the bag and walking around and getting the players to crack up. Bad look for Tom Herman. Bad look for any head coach but especially embarrassing for us, unfortunately. And I realize some people say that he was just sticking up for his guys because an opposing player had talked trash to them. Let your guys talk trash back. Please be the head coach here. Laugh at what they're doing, but don't get involved in that nonsense yourself. But unfortunately, Tom Herman had enough of these moments at Texas that we have a Mount Rushmore for most embarrassing Tom Herman moments here in Austin. That one definitely ends up on the list for me. Honorable mention, by the way, because the Mount Rushmore only has four spots, and this is, I guess, the fifth most embarrassing moment for me would be his attempt to destroy the old locker room by taking a sledgehammer to a locker and not have the wall or whatever it was that he hit give at all with him recoiling and looking like he's suffering a back injury in real time as he's wielding that sledgehammer, trying to swing through a wall and failing miserably at that. So that is the honorable mention. This moment against Missouri certainly qualifies for me as the, or as part of the Mount Rushmore of embarrassing moments for Tom Herman as the Longhorns head football coach. Another moment, how about Tom Herman trying to fight Mike Gundy on the field in Stillwater in the waning moments of what was going to be a loss for Texas to Oklahoma State. That was bad. I think that was partially inspired by Brett Hager, too. But Tom Herman, another one of those times where he just can't help himself, just can't control himself. How about this moment, National Signing Day? We just passed by that last week. Justin and I talked about it. Last segment, Steve Sarkeesian and his staff doing another great job. Tom Herman was a pretty good recruiter here, too. He also had no issues flipping the double bird to the LHN cameras as they were keeping a watchful eye on him in the war room on that first morning of National Signing Day 1, I think it was. Bad look for Tom Herman, flicking off his own cameras. And then the fourth, these are not being ranked in order of importance, by the way, because if they were, I may have to go with this as my number one. It's a game in Waco. Tom Herman, in an effort to try and pump his players up before the game, decides to uh, to headbutt. I think it was two different helmeted players. And the guys were looking 
at one another around him. Like, what the hell is this guy doing? Our head coach is headbutting our helmeted teammates. I think Sam Ellinger even had to pull him aside and say, yo, dude, can you please chill out? This is ridiculous. By the way, Texas lost that game too. So it's not like his attempt to motivate those guys worked. If anything, the opposite happened, where these dudes realized this guy was out of his mind and not worth putting yourself through hell for. So there you have it. Tom Herman, Mount Rushmore of his most embarrassing moments here in Austin. Sure, there's some I missed. If so, let me know by tagging me on Twitter, at Courtesy Wave. All right, we have time for at least one more Where We At story today. I told you, there is a woman who is an ecosexual. You can be just about anything you want sexuality-wise in this day and age, and apparently that includes somebody who's in love with an oak tree. That's right, Sonia Simeonova is in her mid-40s, and she has been telling media who have been coming to talk to her because this is weird that, yes, she is an ecosexual who has taken loving nature to an extreme by being infatuated with an oak tree. She says the oak tree fills her with erotic energy. That's right, erotic energy from an oak tree. Ecosexuals are defined by something called Here Come the Ecosexuals. As a person who finds nature romantic, sensual, and sexy, and often imagines Earth as their lover. The self-intimacy guide and somatic sex educator in training, which is what Sonia is, first started pining for plants after moving to Vancouver Island in British Columbia in the winter of 2020. You're going to be shocked by this, but Sonia also specializes in erotic storytelling. She said she laid eyes on a giant oak tree on her daily nature strolls during lockdown. Quote, I was walking a path near the tree five days a week for the whole winter. I noticed a connection with the tree. I would lie against it. Her connection continued to grow stronger until the summer of 2021 when she started developing erotic feelings for the hardwood. Describing her sappy romantic yearnings, Sonia said she loves, quote, the feeling of being tiny and supported by something so solid and the feeling of not being able to fall. This might seem weird to some, but Sonia says that being with people just doesn't compare. Quote, the presence I feel with the tree is what I'm looking for, but that's a fantasy with a person. I'd been craving that rush of erotic energy that comes when you meet a new partner, and that's not sustainable. Now, Sonia did clarify that she doesn't physically engage in intercourse with the tree because that would be the next level. But rather, the erotic experience is always in her mind. Quote, a big misconception is that ecosexuality means sex between people and nature. It's a different way to explore the erotic. To watch the changing of the seasons is to me an erotic act. You go from death and winter, and then everything comes alive in spring and mates. 
Sonia also claims that equosexuality is already present in a lot of people and that getting in touch with our roots could solve a lot of climate issues. Quote, there's a reason we want to go for picnics and parks and hikes in nature. What we fail to notice is that the reason we want this is to tap into the life force that comes from these things, which is the erotic. I believe that we could gain from having a more symbiotic relationship with nature. Look, I don't disagree with that sentiment, Sonia. I think you're right. In this day and age especially, we're always distracted by whatever. Our phones, our tablets, our technologies, the world around us, especially if we live in an urban setting where you're always having to pay attention to avoid loss of life, other pedestrians, cars, bikers, the nonstop pull of advertising, you name it. Going into nature can be extremely healthy, extremely beneficial. Can help replenish just your general energy levels, but also your attention span too. And really forcing you to be present, to put that technology down and just be present. But to describe it as erotic? Well... I guess I'm just glad to hear that Sonia isn't taking it to truly sexual means because male or female, whatever you're trying to do with that tree, if it ends in splinters, that's not going to feel very good. God, just the thought of tweezers down there. Oh my goodness. All right. That is it for another edition of Sports Day Plus. Thank you to Justin Wells for hopping on for a couple of segments as he typically does. Join me tomorrow. We're going to continue the Texas-Washington conversation from the Husky side of things with former UW quarterback Damon Heward. Great conversation. Cannot wait for that. And a chat with comedian and musician Reggie Watts as well. That's at 6.30. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow at 6. Have yourselves a great rest of the night and hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling.